0: There's no job board really for VC. You need to be on Twitter. You need to be following people on LinkedIn. Like you really need to be in the world in order To even know what it is, how to get the job, who to network with, everything in your life is gonna be an NFT whether you know it or not. It just means it's a unique sort of property. I think that's also why it's really important, particularly in VC, because you're changing the future, right? You're investing in sort of a new reality of the future. And and so for us, it's really important to make sure that we have all perspectives at the table, because otherwise the future is gonna look exactly the same as it does today. If you wanna break into the industry, if you wanna get funding, you can do it. The path becomes a lot clearer once you're in it, so you just have to get started.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Generation Hustle podcast. I'm your co-host, Sherrison, alongside my good friend Amin, and this week we're continuing our VC series with another great guest. Episode 74 is with Nicole Tomaso, Senior Associate at Harlan Capital. As a senior associate at Harlan Capital, Nicole focuses on deal sourcing, due diligence, and platform development. Prior to that, she worked at RBC Capital Markets within the investment banking division, focused primarily on mergers and acquisitions, and IPOs within the technology and digital media sectors. Harlan Capital is a venture capital firm on a mission to change the face of entrepreneurship by investing in 1,000 diverse founders over the next 20 years. They invest post-product, or what they call early seed, with a commitment to reserving specific capital for investments in minority and women founders so we sit down to talk to nicole about her journey into vc she details the day in the life of a senior associate the criteria and due diligence for investing into good companies the future of the internet and web 3.0 how vcs are preparing for future economic downturns and much more if you're looking to get into venture capital this conversation is a great start thank you
2: so much nicole for joining us today
0: Of course. Thank you for inviting me to join you.
2: Awesome. Awesome. So one of the things that we always want to start off with is getting to know Nicole a bit better. So we know Nicole is a VC, but, you know, there's a lot, Nicole, that we want to actually know. There's a person behind the story. And so, you know, one of the things that I find most important is there's always sometimes that life-changing story that has influence and kind of pushes us into the pathway Of kind of where we go. Anything that stands out to you that kind of maybe push you towards VC, finance, and that kind of world?
0: Yeah. So I think there's two that come to mind for me that were sort of pivotal in my journey to getting here. And one of those was I attended Columbia University for undergrad, I was a first generation college student. And so I was fortunate enough to get into Columbia. Um, And so for me, getting into Columbia was a huge accomplishment and meant that I was on the right path sort of to success and, and, you know, was surrounding myself with, with a great network and great mentors. Um, and so that was really big for me. And then I think secondly, it was when I got, um, An interview with RBC, the investment bank. And my interviewer at the time, I admittedly didn't know much about investment banking. I think through college, I was trying to figure out everything. As I mentioned, I was first generation. So it was sort of learn as you go. And so for me, my interviewer um, was a guy who, and I didn't have all the answers to all the questions, right? I tried my best, but he saw potential in me. And I think, you know, he called me to give me the offer and he said, you know, I need to know that. You're going to take this seriously. I need to know that you're going to accept this offer, but I want to give you the chance. And that to me obviously allowed me to get into investment banking, which allowed me to learn sort of the business landscape. And I really needed that base. Um, And so those two are sort of like the pivotal moments where I felt like I was on track in the right direction and needed the guidance, needed the network, needed the chance um, to really get my foot in the door.
2: Yeah. And I think one thing you alluded to there is the opportunity and maybe a bit of luck that also played into it. Um, The other thing that you mentioned there was you kind of coming from a a minority family. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we can kind of relate to that. Um, I would love to hear if you ever felt some limitations that were set on your potentials because you came from a minority group. Mm -hmm. And how did you yourself overcome some of that? Uh, in your early years uh, to get to where you are today
0: yeah so it's interesting i i didn't really feel this until i started working um because i obviously my last name is di tomaso and so i'm half italian half puerto rican my mom's 100 percent puerto rican Um, but because of the italian last name everyone sort of assumes that i'm just italian right and so it was interesting i feel like being a woman actually was more of where I felt the setbacks or the hindrances as opposed to my ethnicity. And, and you know, I think when I started in banking, there was one particular moment I remember I was in training in Toronto uh, for RBC and we were doing sort of modeling courses. And at the end of the modeling course, there was sort of this like quiz game where everyone was going to try Sounds so nerdy, but was everybody was going to try to set, sort of unbreak this model. And um, you didn't have to play. You didn't have to do it, but I wanted to do it. And uh, I remember I was in a group of people and they were calling everybody to go do the modeling quiz. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go, you know, do the modeling quiz. And one guy looks at me and goes, who? You? Basically questioning my intelligence, questioning my abilities. And I think that was really the first time where I, had to my face at least been questioned in terms of like what I could do. And I don't necessarily think that that came from, uh, I don't think it was my Puerto Rican or like ethnicity that played into that. I think it was more sort of like the woman element because obviously investment banking is is fairly homogenous and mostly men. And so I think, you know, it came from a male who said that. And I don't necessarily know that he would have said that to his male colleagues. And so I think that was like the first time. And 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 since then, of course, there's been there's been a few setbacks. Um, but I think that was the first time where I was like, wow, this, you know, it does play a role uh, in how people perceive you off the bat.
2: Yeah, I, obviously, I can't really speak to that, obviously, being a guy and knowing <laughs> investment banking is, again, like you mentioned, mostly men in the industry at that point in time, did you feel like this might not be the right space for you? Because again, you pursued venture capital, which may be kind of an extension of IB. And it's still, let's be honest, still male dominated too. So I'd love to understand the dynamics going through your mind saying, I can still do this. I'm going to challenge myself and I'm going to make a difference.
0: Yeah, I think you know what, it actually motivated me. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, I went into it saying, I'm going to prove everybody wrong. Um, And I think a lot of people feel that way. It's like, you think I can't do this. I'm going to show you that I can, um, and I'm going to do it really well. And so I think, you know, if people had the perception that I couldn't perform, I would perform probably better than I would have if they didn't do that. Uh, And so I think, like, it pushed me. Uh, It pushed me forward. And, uh, yeah, I mean everything happens for a reason, but I, I do think it actually helped me succeed because it showed that I had to go far and beyond to get the same sort of credibility or reputation that others didn't need to. But, but I wanted to do that. Right. I wanted, I, I really wanted to prove everybody wrong.
2: And along that journey, I, I know mentorship is definitely a huge part of many people's lives as they're kind of growing up in mm-hmm. their career. Um, and especially being a woman in, say, investment banking, um, or even now, did you find anyone that you kind of got close to, and did they help you kind of, say, like push you to the right path, maybe influence you the right way, um, any of that that kind of came along throughout the journey?
0: Yeah. So I think I've I've had a few mentors uh, in my life. I think a lot of them have been even my managers at work. I think I've always tried to have that open relationship with them because no one knows your situation better than someone you're working with. No one knows your goals, your skill set, what you're good at, anything like that more than the person that you're working directly with. And so I've, I've been fortunate and I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that everybody can have this relationship with their manager, but I've been fortunate in my career where my manager has played a lot a big role in, in the progression of my career. Um, And so, yeah, I'd say managers at work have always played a role. And then lastly, I think I've always went to my parents first. They're always my first call. Uh, They're always there to listen, you know, and, and provide, provide their feedback. And I think even, even to this day, right. And, you know, I'm, I'm 27, far out of school at this point, and, and still my parents are, are my first call uh, when anything happens. And so, um, yeah, it's been it's been a combination. But outside of that, I've also had some great mentors uh, that I lean on as well um, and have provided me the guidance sort of I needed to get here.
2: Yeah, I love hearing the sentimental piece where, you know, parents just being a good influence and yeah. them being kind of your number one go to individuals. Yeah. They obviously have seen a lot more than we have. Uh right? So it's always cool. I I love hearing that. Um, And maybe just peeling back on that too. I'd love to kind of hear your story on, you know, your experience at RBC and maybe just like, say the Toronto vibe that you may have experienced for a little bit. Um, Obviously, back then, probably not like the whole Toronto man kind of thing going on. But yeah, um, you know, how how, did you find it? And uh, what was the experience like?
0: Yeah, so uh, actually, I love Toronto. I, we, they send us up there for a month when we were doing our, uh, training, uh, before we came in full time. I did it for my analyst training as well as my associate training. So I've spent quite a decent amount of time in in Toronto. Absolutely adore it. Um, I think, uh, my experience at RBC, it provided a great base of business for me. Uh, I, and I've met some of my best friends, honestly, at, at the bank, um, but I think ultimately, being a first-generation college student, I needed sort of that base of business. Uh, and I did it for four years, had great mentorship, was able to have an experience where I was pitching to clients, I was, I was coming up with ideas by myself, and so definitely had a unique experience there. But um, I loved it. I, I, I really, truly did. Um, and the people there were, were great, maybe because Canadians are nicer, I'm not sure. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I think what the, one of the things that make Toronto unique is <laughs> the diversity that we have. Yeah. Uh, I mean, New York's not much different. They have so many different individuals. I think Toronto's unique in that sense where there's like, I don't know, 100 plus cultures kind of <laughs> coupled into one city. Yeah. Yeah, and I yeah, think yeah. it just brings that diversity, inclusion and that thought. I think it's a bit different. It makes a lot more people feel comfortable. And that's kind of maybe why we see a lot of immigrants come to Toronto or you know, other places, just because there is a certain level of comfort that they can experience while kind of working and finding their career paths and stuff like that. So yeah, um, I'm glad you enjoyed it. If you're ever up back in Toronto, let me know, love to kind of show you what's going on (laughs) again. But um, okay, so now we've kind of understood Nicole's early life. But now, you know, one of the things you're very vocal on is kind of helping individuals understand how to break into VC um, and so before we get into that, one of the things I love to understand is how did you actually discover venture capital? I know IB is maybe, a, again, an extension of it somehow, yeah. but how did you come, a, come across it and why did you feel like that was the next move for the right next move for you?
0: Yeah. So it's interesting when I was in investment banking, I didn't know much about venture capital. Uh, and I know that sounds strange, but it it is a different world. Yes, it's finance, but it is a different world. And I knew about private equity, like later stage private equity, like buyout funds, but I wasn't as familiar sort of with the, the VC world or the growth world. And I think I came across VC, honestly, through Harlem Capital, like Harlem Capital and sort of breaking into VC are synonymous to me because I was on LinkedIn one day and I saw their fund one announcement. And I became sort of completely obsessed with their mission, with what they were doing. And so read every blog post they put out, watched every video, you know, listened to every podcast uh, and sort of like, it was like an epiphany for me, right? Like discovering venture capital where you can be in a world where you're talking to founders at the earliest stages of their vision and you know, help them, but then also do it for diverse founders. Uh, and I think there's one, you know, we spoke about this a bit, but IB is very homogenous. Uh, and as a woman of color who also identifies as LGBTQ, of course, there weren't many people like me around me in IB. And I think because of that, I had this drive for my next career, like switch to be where I was helping others. Uh, and so I discovered BC through Harlem Capital, fell in love completely with their mission, um, and then knew basically that it's where I wanted to be. And I think a lot of luck came into play with timing uh, and ended up, you know, I think I discovered them in, I don't even know what it was, uh, January. And I applied for their internship for the summer in March and fortunately got it. Um, I think a big part of that was also that I had reached out to a ton of past interns at Harlem Capital. Like I really, really did my research um, and was able to sort of break in through their internship and then was with them for about six months and then turned that into a, a full-time offer. Uh, and so that's really, that's really how I found out about VC. It was, it was through Harlem Capital.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. And I love the amount of research and kind of the approach and due diligence, kind of like that kind of due diligence, but you know from mm-hmm. a company <laughs> or a fund level uh, that you did um one of the questions we also always get is like you know vc is kind of like that sexy industry now because of like the rise in tech and such such a demand and interest in it and internships have obviously grown in interest in that field as well Mm -hmm. um you mentioned a couple of steps obviously doing your research maybe reaching out to different individuals but are there any other steps maybe you'd recommend for you know individuals that are trying to break in in an internship style uh, role with the VC and uh, how should they approach that?
0: Certainly. I mean, I think, yeah, you mentioned do your research, right? But I think also a big part of this and what I did as well was I created a Twitter, Uh, a lot of stuff happens on Twitter in the VC world, unlike other industries. And, and it allows you to keep a pulse in the industry and, and get to know people. Uh, And even honestly, you could reach out to people on Twitter, right? But, but it's a way to stay, Abreast of everything that's happening in the industry, and and for me, you need to be involved in the world in order to just find the jobs. Right? There's no job board really for VC. I mean, there's the occasional you know you have John Gannon's blog and things like that, but for the most part, you need to be on Twitter. You need to be following people on LinkedIn. Like you really need to be in the world in order to even know what it is, how to get the job, who to network with, uh, things like that. And so. Creating a Twitter is a really, even if you don't want to tweet, right? Like I say this to people all the time. is like, you don't actually have to come up with any of your content. I created a Twitter when I wanted to break into BC when I found out about Harlem Capital. And I don't think I tweeted for the first year I had a Twitter, right? And I just used it as sort of an engine to get information right. as a way to find the jobs, things like that. And so I think like not everybody in BC is on Twitter, but I think if you're trying to break in, it's a great way to do so.
2: Yeah, and I think it's so important. Even on the founder side, I've had a couple of discussions and yeah. where investors are saying you should be kind of more of a brand, try to build your brand. And they, the first thing they say is go on Twitter, figure <laughs> out what other founders are doing, yeah. and then try to build your own persona around that. Um, and you've built quite the following on Twitter now. I obviously follow uh, follow you, and I love your kind of job board feed yeah. that you always provide. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is it weekly? I think it's weekly, It's right? weekly. Something-
0: weekly yeah, on yeah. Wednesdays. <laughs>
2: yeah, so it's, that's awesome. And, you know, I've gotten a few interviews about that process and whatnot. So uh, thanks to you, I've found some opportunities. Oh, um, amazing. Yeah, joining, joining Carlin full time, you you also had a pretty interesting approach in terms of how you kind of built that. Mm-hmm. Um, you built a presentation deck um, that highlighted, you know, why you'd be the right fit. So can you kind of talk to us about your thought process around that? Why you built Absolutely. that pitch deck? And yeah. why you felt like Harlem said that ah, Nicole's the right fit. I mean, they could have chose anyone else for full time, but yeah. they chose Nicole.
0: Yeah. So I was interning with them at the point that I created this presentation. So, so to give you the full story, uh, I'm not sure if I've ever said this on a podcast, so you might be the first one, but to give you the full story, I interned with them in the summer of 2020 at the time they were still on their fund one and hadn't started raising for their fund two yet. Right. And as you probably know VCs are capital constrained right and so they're they're constricted by their fund size based on the management fee and so they can't hire they just don't have the capital to do so so typically hiring happens at the next fund launch so at the time i was interning they were still finishing up their fund 1 and they weren't raising for their fund 2 yet so i knew sort of that it was going to be hard for them to hire me full-time until the next fund and i had actually gone to them and said you know are there any opportunities and they had they had said to me when we raise our fund two, we are going to do a process and you can be a part of that process you can interview and at the time they had said that it, that wouldn't be for another year and a half that they would be opening the position and i wanted to i wanted to leave banking i wanted to sort of move on to my next step and so I actually started recruiting for VC full-time while I was at Harlem Capital because they had told me that the opportunity wasn't there yet. Anyway, fast forward, the BLM movement happened and sort of diversity-focused funds and diversity was sort of at the forefront of everybody's mind. And Harlem Capital was getting a lot of inbounds from people wanting to support them. And so the GPs at the time decided that they were going to raise their fund – earlier than they had expected. So they started fundraising at the end of the summer, beginning of the fall, and had already had the commitments within six months for the $134 million fund. And that was in December, right? And at the time, it was around October, I was aware that they were sort of mid-fundraise and they were going to reach their target. And so in my mind, I thought, how can I turn this into a full-time offer where I don't have to go through the the interview process, right? And we had been working together. It was clear that they liked me. I liked them. Um, And so I had this idea one day where if I wanted them to hire me full-time, I needed to prove to them that I was the person to do it, right? No one knows your value like yourself. And so it was sort of this effort of, okay, I'm just going to make this presentation. I'm going to show them now that I've been working with them where I see the holes in the organization and exactly where I can fit in them. Um, and not only did I tell them that I was going to fill those holes, I gave them examples, right? And I said, this here are three ways that I'm going to do this, right? So it wasn't just like, a, I t- I'm, I'm going to do it it's like, no, I've already thought of ways how I'm going to move this forward, right? I'm, I'm going to tell you how I'm going to operate full time. Um, and so I did that. And, and I think I also added a bit of humor, a bit of inside jokes from working together. And so it lightened the mood a bit, but it was very clear that there was a fit there. Uh, and anyway, so I, I sent it to them uh, when I was a fellow for my, my midterm feedback. And they gave me the offer the next day.
2: That's such a cool story. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it, I find it really cool in the sense that, you know, timing is so important in the VC space. So and you took advantage of timing and just being in the right place the right time as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, understanding what was happening at the time, the movement. And you're like, yeah. hmm, this may be a good time to maybe execute on that idea. I, I love working at Harlem. I love Definitely. the team. And Definitely. so let's kind of take advantage of that. Definitely. That is so smart of you, and that's yeah. such a you know such an inco- encouraging story for individuals trying to break into VC. You have to kind of have that unique approach because there's probably thousands and thousands of applications yeah. going in for that one role.
0: Right, right. I I also think it yeah it is important to think about fund timing because even if they want to hire you, it might not they might not have the capital to do so. But I also think it's interesting because VC is an industry where you can be creative to break in, right? There's very few industries that actually give you that creativity to be able to sort of flex different skill sets to get in, right? And I think creating these presentations, creating a podcast, doing a newsletter, like these are all ways to break into the industry and get to know people that isn't necessarily applicable to other industries, right? Like you can't break into investment banking by doing a presentation or, I mean, maybe you can, but it's less likely, but you know, having a podcast isn't going to help you break into investment banking. Right. And so there's so many ways to be creative, to stand out in this industry. And so you might as well, you know, take the opportunity to do so.
2: Yeah. And a fun little story here. I actually kind of took your inspiration from that uh, presentation Oh, and kind that. of remodeled and repurposed it myself. I love it. Um, and actually shot it out to, I think, like three or four VCs that I had in mind. Um, and they all replied back.
0: Exactly. So, you see? Yeah. Yeah.
2: You see? So They love the unique <laughs> approach because it's not something they're used to. And I think creativity right. really sells in this environment rather than just experience. Like anyone can kind of have experience, but right. I think you need an out-of-the-box kind of approach and thinking. And that's kind of what also kind of leads you to those Like unicorn founders that you might not be looking for, right? So,
1: um,
2: yeah, thanks again for that, also. So, I've been kind of using your feed, using your kind of methods, and they work. So, anyone listening, fall in the (laughs) pool. She has some good points, and she definitely (laughs) does make a difference. Like, I've personally experienced it, I've done it, it works. I love Uh,
1: it. I love it. Yeah,
2: that's awesome. Um, Okay, so kind of like moving into um, Harlem now, one of the things I'd like to ask you personally is, is there any recent investment? We've, we've talked about the thesis, but any recent investment that your team has made that you'd like to highlight? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe can you describe why they were a good fit? Because there's usually kind of specific traits that you Certainly. kind of go for in your firm. Uh, every fund is unique. Um, and like, why were you excited about that project?
0: Certainly. Yeah. So there's one, one investment, and, and I should preface that we have gone sort of deep into Web3. Uh, over the past year, we think it's a really exciting industry. So there's one company called Glow Labs, which is loyalty rewards on the blockchain. Uh, they're all over Twitter. Uh, they have great branding. Um, Annie and Renee are are the founders. But essentially, they're everyone loves rewards, right? Um, and so what Glow Labs is doing is they're bringing that same mentality into this new internet, if you will, this new technology. Um, and so you think like we think, and the reason we got so excited about it is because we think it's essential infrastructure for the future, right? Essential infrastructure for this sort of new internet. Um, and brands are going to need it to reward their customers and things like that. And so we're, we were super bullish, uh, on the product itself. But then I think there was also this element of web three is up and coming and it's an industry where we need diverse folks to be at the forefront. It's the first time sort of in history where we're at more of an even playing field where diverse folks can have a say, right? And, and they can make a difference. And so for us, it was so important to back two women founders in the industry, right? They're sort of the trailblazers. They're opening doors for other women to come into the space, Um and so that really got us excited as well. So not only did we love the product, we see it as essential infrastructure for, for this new, there's new technology. We also loved backing two women who were daring and brave enough to enter a space that is still very male dominated, but are sort of like just doing it, right? And they're incredible. Uh, and they really are, are like just doing it. Highly encourage everybody on this call to go follow them on Twitter, follow Glow Labs. Um, they're going to be, they're going to be huge.
2: Yeah, I'll give them a shout right after we kind of get this podcast out yeah. as well. Who knows, if, if you feel for, uh, feel free to also shoot them out to us, we uh, highlight their story as well uh, anytime. Yeah. Um, always yeah, open yeah, to yeah. those opportunities too. Um, yeah, and kind of maybe looking into um, the Web3 space, mm-hmm. what about the Web3 space is appealing? Because we we've seen a lot of, you know, ups and downs within the space and there's still a lot of questions i have kind of my own analogy and thinking as to why there's so much interest in web3 but i'd love to hear your take first in terms of why this is a space that excites a lot of vc firms right now
0: well i think for for one it's sort of concrete infrastructure right like it it, it, uh, removes a lot of middlemen in every industry um and so I think because of that, it has the ability to transform industries in a way that we haven't seen before because we haven't had the technology that is truly sort of like one identity, immutable, can't change it, right? Um, I think obviously it's still up and coming And and I have this theory that there needs to be a lot more sort of cybersecurity infrastructure in order for it to become ubiquitous, because it's just one is it's expensive, but also it's super risky at this point, right? Like there's so many hacks, we just don't have that essential infrastructure. But I think the technology itself, because of the properties i mentioned, can transform healthcare, it can transform finance, it can transform all of these industries. Um, and so I think we're a long way from it touching a lot of those um, in a meaningful way and getting mass adoption. But I do think that it has the properties to do that. Um, And so I think that's what we're super focused on We're we're focused on essential infrastructure. Right. Um, And I think sort of these NFTs in particular have the ability, you know, everything's going to be an NFT in the future. Right. I think everybody thinks NFTs are sort of the profile pictures on Twitter and or our artwork, which is not necessarily the case. Like in the future, what we see is like your your house deed is going to be an NFT. Right. Like your receipt from CVS is going to be an NFT. Right. It just means it's a unique sort of property. Right. Right. And so I think like everything in your life is going to be an NFT, whether you know it or not. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead.
2: Oh, I was going to say, like, I think a piece of that when we kind of get to that level is. Education. A lot of individuals are yeah. still confusing NFTs with just a picture and saying, why the hell is it valued at so, yeah. such and such price? But yeah. they're not un- understanding the underlying infrastructure that is kind of creating those destructive technologies and layers, um, which Definitely. that's where the value comes from.
0: Definitely. And I, I also think we're in the phases of Web3 right now where it feels almost like we're operating in the back end of the software. So if you think about like the internet today, you don't know everything that happens behind the scenes on the internet, right? But you use it every day, right? And so blockchain is similar. uh, And I think like in the future, we'll have sort of the UX, the UI, the software that makes it easy for people to use. But at this point, It's not the case, right? And I think in the future, you're going to be, you're going to, everything's going to be an NFT without you even realizing necessarily what NFTs are or what the technology is behind it, right? You use the web every day, you know it. Right. You know, the technology, uh, but you don't know the inner workings of it. If I asked you, how do you think the how do you think your search engine works or how do you think so? You don't know. Right. Like, So I think like we're still at the phases where we're operating in the back end and you have to you know, everything takes five steps. Right. You're you're sort of trying to like work through all of it. Um, And so I think there's a long way to go. But I think the technology itself uh, is is going to change the world.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a common question I get from, like, founders in, say, traditional industries um, is, like, why are Web3 projects so popular amongst VCs? And I give this, like, this analogy. So, like, going back to, like, the early 1900s, there were, like, I don't know, like, 200 plus manufacturers of cars. Mm -hmm. It's an early disruptive technology. People used to use horse buggies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But there is going to be a few winners out of that specific cohort that come out and disrupt the industry, right? The best of the best. Definitely. Then came kind of like maybe Y two or not Y two K the two thousands where we had the early internet boom. There's like thousands of internet companies that you know were supposedly disruptive, but we noticed like the few projects that were successful and kind of move on. And I feel like we're in that phase of Web three right now where there's thousands of projects out there, and VC firms are seeing that being potentially an opportunity to obviously find a unicorn. And so I don't th- I think some founders just don't understand like it's an opportunity it has disruptive space and future there will be a company that is like an amazon or whatever it is definitely
0: definitely definitely and i i think you know we were speaking uh with some industry veterans uh and basically they said if you're a vc not investing in web3 w- sort of what are you doing um yeah. and and you know i i sort of agree with that because it's your job to invest in these new technologies, right? Like we could be at the new age of the internet. Right. And, and so there will be winners. There will also be a lot of losers, Losers, right? But I think as a VC, it's our job to invest in sort of the future and that change. And so, you know, I get, it's still risky, but this is where, you know, change is going to happen, right? This is where we're going to get the unicorns. Um, And so you have to be in it uh, to, to be able to see any of that. You have to
2: have your foot in there in order to kind of win and, Every fund is kind of shifting there, uh, at least from the ones I know, they're getting into the space quite actively. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense with kind of how the environment's going and the kind of future disruption that kind of creates. Um, So, you know, we understand Web3 and kind of why you're into it. Now I'd love to understand your role as a senior associate um, and kind of understanding the day-to-day of what Nicole actually does. So we know VC is kind of guarded and people don't know. It's like, oh, she just takes calls and meetings all day. That's, that's all she does kind of thing. But there's a lot more to it. I'm pretty sure. So what does the typical week look like for Nicole? And could you also detail some of the growth in your responsibilities going from an associate to now senior?
0: Yeah. So I actually joined as a senior associate. Oh, okay. Uh, Sorry. I apologize. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, don't have what the that trajectory looks like but in terms of what my my day to day looks like or my week i think you're right in saying that there are a lot of calls right like i think there there are a lot of calls but i'd say you know i sit on the investment team and not every role is the same i, I should say this and i know i've tweeted this a few times like my role at Harlem Capital is going to be very different to other senior associate roles at other VCs, yeah. right? It's it's dependent on the size of the firm. It's dependent on what you focus on, et cetera, et cetera. It depends on, you know, if you're a lead investor versus not a lead investor. And so what I'd say is my role at Harlem Capital, since I sit on the investment team, is I spend probably 50% of my time or more on sourcing and diligence. So sourcing is trying to find great companies, right? Um, and part, a big part of sourcing is also um, taking calls with other investors and, and reaching out to your network often, um, because a lot of deals are shared sort of through those, through your network. Um, and other times, you know, sourcing includes searching LinkedIn for sort of stealth startups or searching LinkedIn for, uh, other like founders in general. Right. And so sometimes it's outbound, um, sometimes it's attending demo days, right? And so that's sort of that sourcing piece. And then the diligence piece um, is basically creating investment committee memos, right? Uh, diving into the business fundamentals, di- you know, chatting with the founder, um, doing all of those things so that you can get to know the business and figure out if it's a good investment for, for Harlem Capital. Uh, and so I'd say that's 50 to 60% of my job. Um, also a, part, a big part of my job since Harlem Capital is smaller, we're seven people, Uh, We also obviously have platform and platform is sort of portfolio company support. It's marketing, it's branding, Mm -hmm. it's everything outside of actually investing that I think some people don't realize are at VC firms, right? There are critical roles at VC firms that happen on on the platform side that don't have anything to do with check writing. Um, And I think because Harlem Capital is small... We recently hired, or last year, I guess it's been a year now, wow, um, someone who manages our platforming community. So she really helms all of that. Um, And then we have a chief of staff who also sits on both sides and, and helps with our platform. But I'd say still we do a lot of platform and community work. And so I spend probably the other part of my job doing platform work, which is portfolio company support, whether that's building models or helping them with fundraising decks. Got it. Um, And then, you know, on sort of the community side, we plan a lot of events. Harlem Capital is like a community fund. Um, And so we do a lot of events. So I could be planning an event in New York, um, could be helping out planning our founder summit. Um, And then also we produce a lot of reports and branding, right? And so I think I am sort of the person on the team who leads the re- uh, data and insights. So all the reports you see that come out, um, a lot of those are done by me and I'm sort of the person behind the scenes doing the, the data crunching. Um, so spend a lot of time there. And then also in general, just doing blog posts. Uh, we put out a lot of thought pieces. We put out a lot of uh, stats in the diversity industry in the, in blog, in blogs and, um, So I think that's also a big part of my job. And so depending on the week, it's shifts, but I'd say those are, those are the major responsibilities, um, that I take on as a senior associate at Harlem Capital.
2: Yeah. And we, we talked about this before the podcast got started, but with relationship, maybe with the macro environment, how has that kind of changed? And, Mm -hmm. uh, could you maybe describe some of the conversations that you're having with founders um, yeah. in terms of just an initial screening and kind of get a thought process and get a feel for what they're getting into?
0: Yeah, so are you talking like new conversations with yeah, founders new, or new conversations. our
2: um, I guess maybe we can extend to maybe the new and the existing. So maybe yeah. we can start with the existing. That's so, probably what you've already told.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so we actually just did a session yesterday with our founders called Recession Ready which was basically the, the GPs of the firm um, outlining the current environment and, and what to expect. Um, but I think ultimately there's just a, a massive reset happening in the VC ecosystem. And I think, you know, the Fed increased interest rates uh, and when the Fed increased interest rates that directly affects the public markets, right? And so public markets sort of declined, all valuations declined. Um, when valuations decline, obviously multiples decline, uh, and when multiples decline, it means that exits are harder, uh, or exits and valuations come down, right? Um, and so what happens there, if you think about the valuation of a company being sort of revenue or EBITDA times a multiple from the public markets, it requires a lot more scale for these businesses to hit the valuations that they were at. Right. And obviously that's difficult. Right. Because those multiples came down a ton. Right. And so you have to like double revenue. Um, and I think as a result, VCs are now seeing that their returns are going to decline. Uh, and when returns decline, LPs don't want to invest as much. And when LPs don't want to invest as much, the capital gets constrained, and then we can't fund as many startups, right? So then you start to see that slow. So that's sort of what's happening in the market now. And I think because of that, VCs don't want to take as much risk. And so what I think is happening and what founders should be aware of is that there's going to be this reset in sort of valuation and dilution expectations, right? Your valuation isn't going to be 100 million at the seed, right? Because that was ridiculous anyway. It wasn't based on business fundamentals. It wasn't based on anything. It was based on sort of hype and superfluous amounts of money. Um, I think also dilution expectations, right? Founders were raising at the seed, only taking 15% dilution. That's not typical, right? That that really isn't typical at all. And so I think we're going to start to normalize it back to that 20%, 25% uh, at the seed. And so I think in our conversations, we're you know, we've sort of said this exact thing to our founders yesterday, um, and that raising is going to be more difficult. If you do have to raise right now, which we hope you don't, we would like you to have 24 months of runway. So figure out how you can do that with, you know, cutting your burn. Um, but I think if you do have to raise right now, you have to go to market with the expectation that it's not going to be what you wanted before. Uh, it's going to be a bit more difficult and you have to be okay with that. Um, And so I think that's sort of permeating through all our conversations, whether it's with our port codes or whether it's with new founders. Um, But with all of that said, I think there still is a lot of dry powder in the market that VCs have that PE firms have. And so the capital still has to go to work. It might slow down, right. In terms of the pace at which it happens. Um, But there's still capital to be had. And, winners will come out of this, right? As long as you have good business fundamentals, if you're focused on the right stuff, some of the best businesses have come out of um, sort of downturns, right? And so the the best founders will win.
2: Yeah, for sure. And maybe an interesting question here is, given the fact that we might expect a downturn, are your expectations of your existing protocols or kind of new companies coming in potentially for investment to kind of scale and grow at the same pace as they were from the expected kind of growth targets when we had like maybe the past five years or it's a bit more lenient say you know focus and leverage kind of those fundamentals um grow you know at a certain pace and scale which is manageable mm-hmm. um and then at a certain stage you can kind of double down and kind of scale
0: yeah i think our messaging has been survive right and if that means cutting your burn and foregoing a bit of growth that's okay okay right it's 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 we want all of our companies to make it out alive right and so figuring out a way to do that is is key um and so yeah i think overall messaging is get to that 24 months hopefully in 24 months it will reset will be at a better time when you do need to go out and get capital. Maybe you're not, you didn't grow as fast over that period, but um, ultimately your business fundamentals still have to be there, right? Unit economics have to be good. Yeah. I think previously what was happening, it was spend at all costs, right? Yeah, spend spend costs. for growth, right? And yeah. and that growth was really the piece that everybody was looking at not necessarily the spend to get there. Um, and I think now what's going to happen is, that growth is going to be important, but what's really going to be important is your business economic, like your unit economics, right? Like, are you smart with your money? Does that growth equal sort of what your, you know, that your unit economics and are they making sense? And I think that's going to play a larger role now than necessarily that top line growth was. Um, right. And so, yeah, I guess to answer your question directly, yeah, messaging is survive. Maybe that means foregoing a bit of growth, uh, right. but but that's okay.
2: Yeah. And maybe just uh, a thing there is just like as a finance professional, I kind of feel like, wow, my role is actually a bit more important the next uh, couple of years coming down the, uh, down the roadmap. Right. So um, one of the things I've told some of the companies I've worked with is obviously cut cut costs and all that kind of stuff. But if you have like a good solid financial person, like they should be able to kind of manage you through this process and Mm -hmm. kind of maybe even if you have to take on some debt and stuff like that, it might be the right choice just to kind mm-hmm. of get you through this whole pace and block that might be yeah. coming up. So um, at least finance is picking up steam, yeah. I guess, in terms of importance because <laughs> yeah. it always used to be uh, like, I, I've been first finance out at two startups and I guess like you kind of take a, a roll back a little bit from like sales growth yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And now it's just like, there's so many questions just thrown on me. It's like, what do you think about this? What do you yeah, think about that? Yeah, can you yeah, yeah. can you re-forecast this? I'm like, yeah. all right, like, okay, now yeah. I'm, I'm now I'm getting busy. Yeah. So it's just an interesting kind of shift in mentality from yeah. founders uh, yeah, that I've seen, definitely. but love yeah. it. Um,
0: well, the finance person has to play a role in every in like division now. Right? Yeah, like, you have to be aware yeah. of sales. You have to be aware of all of these things. Whereas maybe they were taking a step back, as you mentioned.
2: And yeah, they're they're a person to kind of open up those tough conversations, and I think those those are much more needed than ever. So uh, I think that's uh, that's good to see. I think tough conversations are needed, but uh, prior to that, it was more so. Yeah, we'll, well, we can raise money, so that's all good. Um, okay, so we earlier we alluded to this topic around diversity within VC and IB, and maybe the thing I want to talk about now is just kind of like. As a whole, why do you feel like maybe the industry in the first place got to a point where we're kind of very homogenous in, yeah. in the state? I, I, maybe you have thoughts on it because um, yeah. you've been in the industry a little uh, longer than I have, obviously. So, um, what are your thoughts on how we got here today?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it comes down that it comes down to VC is very network heavy. It still is, um, and up until recently, jobs weren't even posted publicly, right? It was all done through network. Yeah. Um, And so I think the industry started homogenous because of sort of systemic reasons. Um, And I think because it was so network-driven, what ended up happening is people didn't have diverse networks, and so the jobs were going to non-diverse folks. Um, And it kept going that way because the jobs weren't public. Um, But I think even with that, even if the jobs were public – the information isn't ubiquitous, right like people don't really know what v c is. I was in finance I didn't know what v c was. I can't imagine that you know everybody outside of finance knows what v c is right and so I think there's a lot of gated info as well, and a lot of stuff is shared internally um and as a result doesn't allow people to educate themselves on the industry. it doesn't even allow them to know that this is a career path and and so I think that's sort of what happened is everything was so insular to the industry um the information, the jobs, everything. Um and I think that led to it continuously being non-diverse, which I still think is is a big issue today. We're nowhere where nowhere near where we need to be. But I think that also plays a big role in sort of why a lot of diverse founders don't get funded because you know, humans have subconscious biases. They tend to gravitate towards things they know. Um, which leads them to invest in founders that look like them or have similar values to them. Um, and because there's no check writers on the other side that are diverse, diverse founders struggle, right? Um, and so I think it's sort of this vicious cycle uh, that that we're slowly trying to break, but we're trying to retroactively break it, right? And And that's difficult.
2: Right, and why do you feel like, it's important to have a diverse kind of thinking and unique approaches when it comes to tackling these problems. Um, and why will it play kind of a strong role in promoting VC as a whole, but innovation as a whole, um, when investing in these individuals, founders and diverse VCs in general.
0: Yeah. I think, I think within the VC industry, but also outside of the, in in VC industries, like diverse perspectives are just objectively better for, for business. Right. Having different people around the table and different thinking is objectively better. There's there's tons of data to show this. Um, but it's as I mentioned before, whereas like humans tend to subconsciously gravitate towards things they know, problems they understand. Right. And I think as a result, as someone who's investing in fixing problems, you are more in tune with the problems that you experience. Um, and that tends to come back to the way that you live, your culture, your ethnicity, your gender, things like that. Um, and so if you don't have people with a diverse perspective or the diverse life experiences to understand these problems, you, you probably won't fund them. And then as a result, it leads to the same sort of funding patterns into the same sort of problems. And it's usually what males experience, white males experience. Right. Um, and so, I think that's also why it's really important, particularly in VC, because you're changing the future, right? You're investing in sort of a new reality of the future. And, and we have a greater, we have a greater stake in what happens in the future and what that looks like. Yeah. Um, and so for us, it's really important to make sure that we have all perspectives at the table because otherwise the future is going to look exactly the same as it does today.
2: Right. Yeah. And, no, I and think we it's can't so do that. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that's such an important point you make is because you're kind of changing the path of the future and kind of where decisions are made and where industries go. Mm-hmm. Having that diverse thought profile is definitely going to kind of immerse ourselves in better decision making, but kind of thinking, having that unique approach saying, oh, I never thought about this. That that might be a yeah. cool idea. Let's invest in that too. Um, and maybe a personal question here, uh, given the fact that you also identify uh, as a woman and you're part of the LGBTQ community. Is do you feel that you might have a moral obligation mm. to promote diversity within BC?
0: Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily call it an obligation uh, because I think there is sort of this prevailing thought within the ecosystem that it's diverse diverse folks' responsibility to fix the homogeneity, mm. and it's not. I think yeah. like. We can't fix it when we don't have representation in the industry, right? Um, I think we can try to push it forward, but ultimately, we need everyone to do their part. Um, And so for me, it's not an obligation. I push diversity within the ecosystem because I I deeply care about it. Um, And I think it's important to have diverse folks around the table for the reasons that we mentioned before, where we play a role in the future. Um, And I think also for me, it's I want to see people like me winning right um, and so I want to do it I do it because it's a passion of mine I do it because like diverse people deserve the opportunities that they're not getting right and so if I can play a small part in that I want to um, but it's not an obligation I wouldn't I wouldn't classify it as that
2: got it got it no I, I do know some people are different where I talked to a, another VC where he's very passionate about yeah. the topic yeah. and I guess it differs but I feel like you're you're already doing an awesome job, kind of doing that through Twitter and all the stuff that you already do. So, I mean, kudos to you. You're definitely someone in the industry that we need. Uh, so, uh, happy to see more individuals such as yourself, kind of promoting VC and kind of having that unique profile and thinking. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's awesome to see. Um, so, kind of how we want to round this off is kind of ask you about things about outside of work. And so one of the things that is very important to say millennials specifically is mental health and kind of keeping mellow outside of, you know, our busy schedules. So what is your approach on kind of keeping and having the practicing healthy mental health? Yeah. Um, And what are some activities you do to, you know, enjoy that
1: stuff?
0: Yeah, uh, I think for me, uh, seeing friends is always a way that I get out of work, uh, and, and things like that. Um, I also think I love to read cheesy fiction books, like probably like young adult books, honestly, at this point. Um, (laughs) like I just love that because it takes me out of my reality, uh, for a bit. And so if I can do that, you know, a few hours, like an hour before I go to bed or something like that, um, it sort of allows you to forget about uh, you know all the the problems that are that are happening in the world and and all of those things that are causing you heartache um, and just allows you to live somewhere else for a bit. I think some people do that through movies, some people do it through TV shows. I personally really love cheesy fiction books. Um, and yeah, so that's that's basically uh, how I do it. I think you know another big big thing here is I do like to work out. I think spending 30 minutes to 45 minutes a day uh, moving your body or, or five times a week, whatever it is, uh, moving uh, is just a great way to to keep your mind healthy, to keep you feeling good. Um, and it is a time to sort of also step back from reality a bit, right? Because you're sitting in your own struggle. You can't breathe. So you're like, well, <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> but like, um, yeah, I think some, yeah. And then, and then I guess the last point here, which I do want to mention because I think it's really important, um, and I thought about it when you sent me the questions, is sometimes you're not productive between the hours of nine to five. And I think I've learned, particularly in remote work, and I don't know if everybody has this privilege, but is finding your pro- your productivity times right. And if it's not between yeah. nine to five, that's okay, right? Yeah. If like one morning you're really feeling unproductive, you can't really focus, you have things on your mind giving yourself the space to sit back and do some things that maybe aren't work related is really important. And then maybe, you know, at 7 PM at night, you're like, Oh, I want to work right now. Like I have a jolt of energy. Yeah. So I think being super cognizant of those produ- productivity times is, is really important and will help with your mental health because you're giving yourself the space to work when you want and not at other times. Yeah. Um, and that's helped me a ton.
2: Yeah. And I think that's such an important point. Cause like, personally for me, I've done that too. Um, you know, within like the whole remote space, I felt I, w- I was working longer hours, kind of stuck between that time frame. But I started realizing like, you know, maybe if I push my day a little further, that's kind of where I feel more productive, where I can get like from eight to 10, I can do like the gym and kind of get exactly. my reading in and all that kind of stuff. It structures my day and it makes me a bit more productive and happy, yeah. I guess. Exactly. And so like to your point, I think that's very important. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Nicole, that's like kind of the bulk of the podcast there. Um, so, so one of the things that we always do at the end is a quick little lightning round. Okay. And so there's four questions. I'll give you a couple seconds to answer each one. <laughs> so let me know when you're ready.
0: All right, go for it. I hope I can answer them all.
2: All right, let's go. With, let's <laughs> go for it. So the first question, what's your favorite book of all time?
0: Favorite book of all time. So this is very cliche, uh, but Rich Dad, Poor Dad,
2: oh, okay. Rich Dad,
0: Poor Dad changed my perspective uh, towards life and career and money and everything. Um So I, I have to go with that one, even though I don't know if it's, if it's, you know the best book of all time it was one that had a really big impact on my life
2: absolutely i think that's that's a catalyst for so many people just to kind of shift their mindset on how to, how finance works and how yeah. real money is made yeah. um okay next question uh if you've traveled to this place already but um what is kind of on your bucket list of a place to travel to
0: oh uh i recently discovered my love of vietnamese food um Mm, interesting well i was spending time in london and i adore it and i love it so i would i really want to go to vietnam so that i can eat authentic vietnamese food
2: (laughs) awesome no that's actually also my answer too that's that's on my bucket list of going there like i have friends i have a friend his girlfriend is from the south he's from the north so Mm -hmm. they have completely different perspectives yeah yeah and i was just like Tell me how to travel Vietnam and kind of go through that process. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, like yeah. it's different. Like their approach is different. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. um so if you were to have quite I mean sorry, if you were to have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would that be?
0: Michelle Obama.
2: Nice. Nice. <laughs> and we'll save the most controversial question here that uh stumps most of our uh guests. Do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yes or no?
0: Mm, I'm gonna have to say nay
2: all right you're you're on my boat so that's that's awesome <laughs> i fruit does not belong in a pizza and i always say this i don't want to go into the rabbit hole of tomatoes you a fruit got, too you got, yeah i don't want to go into <laughs> controversial, that controversial yeah yeah, yeah. contrarian yeah, sure. opinion <laughs> yeah but uh thanks so much for doing this nicole is there any last message that you have for the audience and if they want to kind of follow you find you where did they do that
0: yeah certainly so Follow me on Twitter uh, at Nick underscore um, I provide a lot of helpful resources for founders who are looking for funding or folks who are trying to break into VC. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn uh, at Nicole DiTomaso. Um, I post on both of those. Uh, post more on Twitter, though. Post more yeah. daily LinkedIn probably twice a week. Um, so if you're looking for those daily insights, you can find me on, on Twitter. Um, but otherwise... Parting words, I think if you want to break into the industry, if you want to get funding, you can do it. Um, it, The path becomes a lot clearer once you're in it, so you just have to get started.